Wednesday, the 6th of January, 1982, Breckenridge, Colorado. That Wednesday had been a typical winter's day, with temperatures dropping way below zero degrees and a snowstorm brewing on the horizon. The picturesque town of Breckenridge was located at the base of the Rocky Mountains, and it was known for its ski resorts and year-round alpine activities, the perfect place to escape to on a winter's retreat. Though, for the small town of Breckenridge, that particular January Wednesday would become a day that many would remember. The safe haven that the residents of Breckenridge called home had unknowingly become the hunting grounds of a killer. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it's not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature to true crime, and with 4K at no extra cost, it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day while learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week, so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched Crossbow Killer, which is a documentary about a horrific discovery that happened on a sweltering hot summer's day in 1992. The unidentifiable bloated body of a man was found in the Black River in Cape Town. He had a crossbow bolt through his head. Through an ingenious new method, the pathologist on the case was able to take the victim's fingerprints to identify him. Slowly, the police put the puzzle pieces together, and the facts about the horrific murder began to emerge. Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and use your one month free trial to go watch Crossbow Killer. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I've said before, new documentaries like Crossbow Killer are added to Magellan TV weekly, so do not sleep on this offer. Grab your one month free trial using the link below and thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Once you've watched Crossbow Killer, be sure to leave a comment down below about your thoughts and opinions or send me a tweet or Instagram DM and let me know what you think. Just before we jump right back into this case, I do want to say that I have covered this case in the past on my channel in 2019 and it was called the Orange Socks Murders. But the reason I'm revisiting it today is because new information has come to light and a possible prosecution, which is really exciting. So I thought I'd retell this case, retell the people's stories and give you that update. Now, back to the case. Many people are drawn to Colorado seeking an escape. And with its natural beauty and snow-covered Rocky Mountains, it is the perfect place for anyone who loves the outdoors. 
Breckenridge is one of the closest ski towns to Denver, which makes it a very popular destination for tourists, and there are always new people in and about the town. Despite this, Breckenridge still maintained that small town feel, making everyone feel welcome and a part of the community, the perfect place for an escape from the city life, and the perfect place to move to for that slower paced lifestyle. That feeling is exactly what 29 year old Barbara Jo Oberholzer was craving. Known to all as Bobby, she was drawn to the small town of Alma, which was just 40 miles away from Breckenridge. Bobby was described as a soft-spoken yet lovely woman who loved animals. She spent all of her time with her beloved bird, her horse, her dog, and her husband, Jeff. Bobby and her husband had eloped in a simple ceremony on Friday the 1st of July, 1977, and had been happily married ever since. Now, Jeff actually owned and ran a successful appliance repair business in the hometown of Alma, Colorado, and Bobby had been asked by her husband whether she had wanted to work at his company, but Bobby had decided from early on that she didn't want to confuse her professional life and her personal relationships, and so found a job as a receptionist in the nearby town of Breckenridge. On the 6th of January 1982, Bobby had finished a super positive day at work. She had been promoted to office manager at the real estate development company where she was employed. This was something that she had been working towards for a long time, so naturally she wanted to go out and celebrate. As she left the office that day, Bobby and some of her colleagues decided to go to the local pub and get some drinks. Meeting her friends at the bar, Bobby did what anyone would have done in her situation. She enjoyed her night out with her friends, not worrying about anything but having a good time. Unbeknownst to Bobby and her loved ones, this would be the last time she would be seen alive. Jeff, Bobby's husband, had last spoken to her at 6.20pm that evening when she had called home to tell him that she would be at the pub after work. Jeff congratulated her on the promotion and asked if she needed to be picked up when she was done. Now, the couple lived together in Alma, which was 14 miles away from Breckenridge, so walking home for Bobby wasn't really an option, especially with the winter temperatures outside. Bobby said no to Jeff's proposal and assured Jeff that she had a ride and that she'd be returning home soon after they'd finished celebrating. Jeff, knowing that Bobby would be coming home soon, made dinner for the both of them and waited for her to arrive. At around midnight, Jeff woke up on the sofa from an unexpected nap and went into the kitchen to see if Bobby had maybe left him to sleep on the sofa while she ate her dinner. After noting that both meals were untouched, Jeff checked their bedroom, assuming that she must have just gone straight up to bed without having any dinner. Though, when he entered the bedroom, the bed that he shared with his wife was empty. Jeff then searched the rest of the house for her until he realized that she wasn't there, and so he decided to stay up and wait for her to arrive home. He decided that Bobby had probably gotten just a little bit drunk at the pub with her friends and had decided to continue on the celebrations. When 2am rolled around and she still hadn't arrived home, Jeff knew something was seriously wrong. The pub that Bobby had been drinking at closed at 2am, and knowing Bobby, she would have left before they started kicking people out of the club. With a bad feeling in his stomach, Jeff decided to drive to Breckenridge to look for her. After talking to her friends, Jeff became more and more worried. You see, they told him that she had actually left them in the pub at 7.30pm, meaning that no one they knew had seen her in hours. Her friends were worried. 
but believed that she must have just gone to someone else's house, possibly the person who had given her this lift. Hitchhiking was very common in Breckenridge and the surrounding towns. Residents often stopped for people that they knew, which was in keeping with that feeling of the close-knit community in the area. There were even dedicated areas in the villages where people would go to wait for someone to give them a lift. These were unofficial places, such as the corner of the Minimart, but the locals knew what this meant. Bobby had, in fact, hitchhiked to work that morning at 7.15am, which was a normal occurrence, so it was never something that people questioned. Quote, Everybody hitchhiked. You got to know the people in the town, and they got to know you, and they'd look for you to take you over and back if you needed a ride, Jeff would later tell the media. While in Breckenridge, he decided to check out Bobby's office building, just in case she had decided to just crash on the couch in the office. Though, as he feared, the office was locked and dark. No one answered his frantic knocks on the office doors. After finding no signs of Bobby in the town or in her office, Jeff went to the police station to report that Bobby was missing. Despite everything Jeff told them, they told him it was too early to file a missing persons report. Now, just as a side note, it is extremely important for me to mention right now that you should not wait to report someone as missing. As soon as you have cause for concern, you must file a missing persons report. The myth that you must wait 24 hours is simply not true. As soon as you know someone is missing and might be in danger, please go straight to the police. After the police told Jeff to come back the next day if she hadn't turned up, he drove back home hoping she would be there waiting for him or turn up in the next few hours. The next morning, on the 7th of January 1982, Jeff got a call from a farmer who lived 30 miles outside of Breckenridge. This farmer told Jeff that he had found Bobby's driver's license on his property, and so Jeff and two of his friends went to pick up the license. On the way to the property, the men in the car noticed a blue spot in the snow of a field that they were passing by, and as the car drove closer to the field, Jeff recognised the blue object amongst the snowfall. This blue object turned out to be Bobby's backpack, which she had with her when she had left for work the day before. Along with the backpack, the group also found one of her gloves, which was spattered with blood, and several bloody tissues. After finding the items, Jeff's friends helped him organise a search party, but they insisted he remained at home while they set out cross-country. The group trekked out in the snow, crossing the wooded terrains of the area, searching for any signs of Bobby. Two hours later, at around 3pm, Jeff's worst nightmare came true. The body of 29-year-old Barbara Jo Oberholzer had been found over 15 miles away from where her backpack had been discovered. She had been found face up, 300 feet south of the parking lots near the summit of Hosier Pass, approximately 10 miles south of Breckenridge. Unknown to Jeff, just before 8pm the previous night, a friend of Bobby's had been driving through Breckenridge and had spotted Bobby standing outside the mini-mart in the snow, and this friend pulled over to offer her a ride. Though, knowing that this friend wouldn't be driving all the way up to Alma, she declined this ride and decided to wait for someone who wouldn't be put out by driving to Alma. As this friend drove away, he looked back at Bobby in his rearview mirror and watched her knock her shoes free of snow and huddle deeper into her jacket, completely unaware that he would be the last person to see her alive. At the crime scene where Bobby's body had been found, the police found three pieces of evidence. 
However, unfortunately, the three pieces of evidence that had been recovered didn't help the police at all. The first piece of evidence was a plastic cord tied around one of her wrists, which alluded to the facts that she had likely been tied up. The second piece of evidence had been the facts that only her footprints had been found in the snow. And the third and final piece of evidence located was an orange sock, which was later determined to have not belonged to Bobby. After searching the surrounding area, the police found a keyring and hook that Jeff had made for Bobby on the ground of the car park near the summit of Hosier Pass. The keyring was actually a metal hook defence weapon. The police speculated that Bobby had been successful in hitching a ride with someone, but that someone had very sinister intentions, kidnapping Bobby. They believe that Bobby managed to escape from the car that she'd been trapped in with her kidnapper while it had been parked in the Hosier Pass car park. Investigators believed that her killer had been planning to sexually assault her while they were parked in the car park, but Bobby fought back and escaped. It's then suggested that she ran along the road from the parking lot for around 300 feet and had tried to take cover and hide in the trees nearby. Unfortunately, Bobby didn't make it into the safety of the trees that silently surrounded the road leading to the car park. Bobby was confronted by her attacker on the road, and it appeared that she had gone down the snow embankment, stopping just before a cluster of trees, before trying to go back on herself, where she ultimately fell onto her back, before sliding down the snow a little and coming to her final resting place, where she succumbed to her injuries. Bobby had been shot twice at close range in the chest. Bobby had also sustained a secondary grazing wound to the right breast, which was likely to have been caused by a bullet just barely missing her. On the same day that Bobby's remains were found, in the afternoon of Wednesday the 6th of January 1982, a 21-year-old woman called Annette Schnee would be reported as missing. 21-year-old Annette Schnee had moved to Colorado to pursue her dream of becoming a flight attendant. She moved to Breckenridge as it was close to Denver and she believed that the close proximity to the city and the people she would interact with in the ski town would be the perfect way for her to get a foot in the door. She worked two jobs in the area, the first being a day shift at the Holiday Inn in Frisco and the second as a bartender at a bar in Breckenridge. Annette was known as a spitfire and was someone who had a large determination to succeed. On Friday the 8th of January 1982, Annette's boss from the Holiday Inn called the police after Annette missed the previous two days of work. This was very unlike Annette as she was described as being very reliable and someone who was rarely ill. Annette had last been seen at the pharmacy in Breckenridge at 4.45pm on Wednesday the 6th of January 1982. She had filled her prescription at this pharmacy and was then seen talking to an unidentified woman who she had reportedly reminded to buy cigarettes. A witness overheard this conversation. This unidentified woman that she had been seen with was described by witnesses as being a white female, stood at around 5 foot 4 inches tall and had a slender build. Interestingly, this woman was also described as looking as if she had been camping out for a few days. The unknown woman smoked Marlboro cigarettes, and the only purchase that Annette had made had been her prescription. Annette had been scheduled to work a shift at 8pm that night at the bar in Breckenridge, though she had left her uniform at home in a different town. She never picked it up. Around five months after Annette was reported as missing, on Saturday the 3rd of July 1982, 
A young boy and his father had been fishing in the Sacramento Creek in a mountain valley about 10 miles south of the Hosier Pass, where Bobby's body was found. While walking further down the creek to find a better fishing spot, the boy came across a woman's body laying face down, fully clothed and partially submerged in the water. The body was that of the missing Annette Schnee. Sacramento Creek, where Annette's body was uncovered, was a very isolated mountain valley area. It was around 20 miles away from Breckenridge, where Annette was last seen. Police speculated that she was hitchhiking home from the pharmacy to get ready for work, but, as with Bobby, had accepted a lift from someone with very sinister intentions. When the police searched her bedroom, they found her work uniform still laid out on the bed, waiting for her to return. It suggested that Annette had intended to head home that night before her 8pm shift at the bar to quickly get changed into her uniform, though on her travels back home, she disappeared. Now, it is important to note that the police did connect Annette's and Bobby's cases due to striking similarities between them. It was immediately suspected that Jeff had somehow been involved in both murders, though when investigators spoke with Jeff, he initially claimed that he had never met Annette and didn't know her. However, after he saw pictures of Annette on the local news, he actually went back to the police and told them that he had met Annette once before. Jeff claims that Annette had once hitched a ride with Jeff, and during that ride, Jeff gave Annette his business card. He goes on to claim that that was the only time that he had met Annette, and that he hadn't heard from her or seen her since. The temperatures were very cold on the nights that both Bobby and Annette had been trying to get home, approximately 20 degrees below, and it had been snowing in the area. Due to these cold conditions, Annette's body had been preserved a lot better than the police thought it would have been. Though as the snow had melted in the year as it started to heat up, her body had started to decompose. Annette had been found fully clothed, but her clothing was a mess. She had both shoes on, but had been wearing unmatched socks. She had one long striped sock on her right foot, with the matching sock being found in the pocket of her blue jumper. The piece of evidence that shocked the police the most had been the other sock found on Annette's left foot. They had finally found the second sock, which matched the orange sock found with Bobby. Annette had been shot in the back, which was determined to have been the cause of her death. The bullet had gone straight through her body and clothing, and to this day, the bullet that killed her has never been found. Based on the crime scene and the evidence, the police were certain that the bullet and shot had come from the same gun that was used to kill Bobby. These two women had never met, and they had very little in common. Their bodies were found 13 miles and 6 months apart. Based on the state that Annette's body was found in, the police determined that she died at around the same time as Bobby. One thing was immediately clear, they had both been killed on the same night, by the same person. This only raised more questions for the police. Who had done this? Why did they do this? And finally, how? Police theorised that Annette set out to hitchhike home to get ready for work. Her killer picked her up and drove 20 miles south of Breckenridge, pulling into a dead-end road. Once parked up, they believed she was sexually assaulted. Then, while they were both redressing, she managed to escape, though as she was running away, she was shot in the back. With his victim now dead, the police believed her killer drove back to Breckenridge and found Bobby, 
who became his second victim. That would explain the orange socks. The main suspect for these murders was Bobby's husband, Jeff Oberholzer. The police were highly suspicious of Jeff for multiple reasons. The first reason was that the night Bobby died, she was out celebrating her promotion, which came with a nice pay rise for Bobby. It was known by many that Bobby and Jeff weren't exactly doing well on the money front, and Bobby had been seen scraping together money at the feed store to be able to pay for her animal food. So in the police's mind, surely getting a pay rise for the couple would be grounds for both of them to celebrate, but Jeff never joined in on the night out. So this theory is based on the idea that there might have been some underlying problems within the marriage. This theory was only bolstered when the police spoke to Bobby's family. While the majority of the family at first believed that Bobby and Jeff were happy in their marriage and actually had been trying for kids in the near future, Bobby's sister was less convinced. A few months earlier, Bobby's younger sister traveled to see Bobby in Alma and she believes that there was something off about the relationship. The sister told police that while Bobby never told her that something was wrong in the marriage, she could tell that Bobby was withholding information and that something wasn't quite right. When looking back on the relationship retrospectively, Bobby's family began to think that maybe the marriage wasn't as blissful and happy as they initially thought. The main points that led them to this conclusion was Bobby's mother's wedding. In November of 1981, Bobby's mother got remarried in Wisconsin and Bobby made the trip alone. Both Bobby and Jeff were from Wisconsin originally, and Bobby's family believes that the pair would be making this trip together so that they could spend time with both Bobby and Jeff's families, so they were naturally confused when Bobby made the trip alone. The second thing that made the police distrust Jeff was that he lied about knowing Annette. In September of 1982, two months after Annette's body was found, Annette's backpack was found along the highway, between Blue River and the Hosier Pass. The backpack held her belongings, including the prescription she had picked up in Breckenridge, along with a photo of an unidentified man and a business card from Jeff Olberholtz's repair business. As we mentioned earlier, Jeff had told the police they had given her this business card when she had hitched a ride from him, but he claimed to have never seen her again afterwards. Investigators turned their attention to the photograph of the unidentified man, though despite their best efforts, the police were unable to identify who the man in the picture was, and to this day, his identity is still unknown. With all this mistrust coming from Bobby's family, the link between Annette and Jeff, and the investigators' suspicions, Jeff decided to talk to the police and cooperate with anything they wanted from him. This saw Jeff submitting himself for a polygraph test, which he passed, leading to the police dropping their suspicions for him as the main suspect. Now I've mentioned this many times before on this channel, but there is a reason that a polygraph examination is inadmissible in court. They're simply not reliable and are more used as a tool to intimidate a suspect into revealing the truth rather than actually determining whether they're telling the truth or not. Now, besides Jeff, there were a few other suspects that the police looked into for these cases. The first was a cab driver called Thomas Luther, who was jailed for beating and sexually assaulting a hitchhiker after picking her up in Breckenridge in February of 1982, a month after Bobby and Annette had been killed. While in jail, Thomas alleged that he was the one that killed Bobby and Annette, and his girlfriend at the time also told police that he wasn't at home on the night of the murders. The next suspect was Tracy Petrosilli, 
he had gone on a multi-state crime spree after killing his fiancée in 1981. The police learned that he had actually stayed at the Holiday Inn that Annette worked at at around the same time as the murders. Another suspect that the police looked into was the alleged serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas, better known as the Confession Killer. Though all of these suspects were looked into and investigated, but no evidence gave the police enough grounds to charge any of them with any of the murders. And despite the police's suspicion, there was no solid evidence that pointed to Jeff being the killer either. And so, unfortunately, the cases of Bobby and Annette went cold. Even with the cases going cold in 1982, the deaths of Bobby and Annette have been actively pursued for decades. These efforts were led by Charlie McCormick, a former Denver homicide detective turned private investigator, who began working on the case in 1989, seven years after the murders took place. McCormick had actually stopped working as a homicide detective after becoming burnt out, seeing too many murders, which understandably drained his desire for continuing police work. But after seeing the case files for Bobby and Annette's murders years later, McCormick got an itch to solve them. And so he came to the police station with a list of around 50 tasks which he said he needed to be done to help restart the search for the killer. As he was no longer a police officer, he couldn't join the case with the Summit County's Sheriff's Office. Instead, he signed on as a private investigator for the Schnee family, in which he was paid $1 a year. He was doing this case out of his own need to find justice, rather than a need for a paycheck. McCormick, who is now in his 80s, worked alongside the Park County Sheriff's Office over the past nearly four decades to try and find justice for these two families. He's spoken out about the cases in the years that have passed, and he combed through case file after case file, trying to find something that might have been previously missed. McCormick said that a key turning point in the investigation was in 1998, when they discovered that there was usable DNA from the crime scene of Bobby. As DNA testing technologies advanced, the investigators were able to analyse the blood found on Bobby's glove, and they learned that it belonged to a man. The first thing that they did was contact Jeff to compare his DNA to the DNA they found on the glove. And as Jeff stated all those years ago, he didn't have anything to do with these deaths. And the DNA confirmed this when it wasn't a match. Finally dismissing the theory that Jeff killed his wife and Annette. Speaking out after this unsuccessful DNA match, McCormick emphasised that Jeff always cooperated with the police over the years. He took and passed two polygraph tests and willingly allowed detectives to search his home for evidence, all in the hopes that something would help them break the case. The DNA from the glove also failed to match any records in the FBI's DNA index system over the years, but new hope came with the development of genealogy testing. Beginning in 2020 and moving into 2021, DNA from the crime scenes of both Bobby and Annette was analysed using genetic genealogy and was tested against samples submitted on public DNA databases. This testing gave the police over 12,000 people that could be linked to the killer through their family trees. Eventually, after combing through all of the data, signs began pointing towards a man named Alan Lee Phillips. The detectives working the case spent six weeks tailing and investigating the now 70-year-old man who they believed might have been responsible for the 1982 murders, after obtaining a DNA sample from Alan, they were able to fully test it against the blood sample found in 1982, 
and to their shock, it was a match. Finally, after nearly 40 years, they had found their killer. On Wednesday, the 24th of February, 2021, Alan Lee Phillips, aged 70, was arrested during a traffic stop near his home in Dumont, Colorado, in connection to Bobby and Annette's cases. Shockingly though, this is not the end of this case. When the police arrested Alan for the murders on the 24th of February, 2021, his mugshot was plastered across news channels in the area and caught the attention of retired fire chief Dave Montoya. Dave Montoya immediately recognized Alan's face as the man he rescued from the top of Gwinella Pass near Breckenridge on a freezing January night 39 years ago. At the time of the rescue, local papers described the rescue as a miracle. Alan's truck had gotten stuck in a snowdrift and he was stranded in the snow with the temperatures dropping to 20 below. He was sat in his truck using his headlights to flash SOS in Morse code and luckily for him, someone spotted it. A sheriff from Jefferson County was on a United Airlines flight to California as it passed overhead and spotted the truck flashing its headlights. Confused at first over the flashing lights on the ground, the sheriff soon figured out the Morse code from the lights and he alerted the flight crew who radioed for rescue. When the rescuers arrived on the scene, they found Alan intoxicated with a large bruise on his face, but he was otherwise unharmed from getting stuck in the snowdrift. Montoya asked Alan what he was doing in the Guanella Pass that late at night and in these weather conditions, and Alan told him that he got drunk and had decided to drive home. He thought that to be a good idea. At the time, Montoya was just too shocked at how this rescue came together for him to question him any further. When the fresh bruise on his face was mentioned, Alan said that he had climbed out of his truck to go pee and he had been blinded by the snow and hit his head on the corner of his truck. 40 years later, this story has switched from a miracle rescue to that of a despicable killer on the loose. We now know that that bruise on his face didn't come from him hitting his car. It came from either Bobby or Annette while they were fighting to escape his clutches. Finally, after nearly 40 years, the families of both Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee can finally put a name and face to the person who killed their family members. Quote, I pray that the arrest of Alan Phillips for the murder of my wife, Bobby Joe and Annette Schnee will finally, after all these decades, bring closure and peace to this hideous nightmare for myself, along with all the lives he is horribly affected by his actions, Jeff would later tell the media. On Wednesday the 24th of February 2021, Alan Lee Phillips, aged 70, was charged with first-degree murder, assault and kidnapping in the killings of Annette Schnee and Barbara Jo Oberholzer. He was scheduled for a preliminary hearing on the 13th of September 2021 and currently remains jailed in Park County. 88-year-old Eline Franklin, Annette Schnee's mother, said she was relieved that she had lived long enough to see an arrest. Quote, I just thought before I leave this earth, I would like to see some closure. It's been a rough 40 years. I can only hope that now the killer has been found, the families can find closure knowing that the killer has been brought to justice. And that's everything that we have for you in this case. Be sure to follow me over on Twitter for more true crime content. My handle is at it's Joshua Miles. There's a link in the pinned comments and in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel and you hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video. 
Also, join our True Crime Discord server if you want to join our little Discord community, which is 100% free and hang out with some really lovely folk who talk about true crime, their pets, knitting and more, and to get involved in helping to make these episodes, jump over to joshuamouse.co.uk slash join and join us today. A special thanks to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to grab your one month free trial using the links below. Also, our merch store is still open. There, there's some new notebooks on there. I'll put them on screen now. We just released this new notebook. There's like four left. So if you want to grab one before it sells out, make sure you jump over to joshuamiles.shop and grab one. 10% of each purchase is donated to the DNA Doe Project. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support.